Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that examines America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. We often think of the American Constitution as having been created in the 1780s, but 80 years later, in the period of Reconstruction after the Civil War, there was a constitutional revolution. The winners in the war, having sacrificed so much to keep the Union together, wanted, as they put it, to secure the fruits of victory. And they did this by passing three revolutionary constitutional amendments. The 13th ended slavery. The 14th defined US citizenship in a way that included black people, all persons born or naturalized in the United States, and guaranteed all citizens the equal protection of the laws. The 15th Amendment prevented anyone from being denied the vote on the grounds of race. And all these amendments gave the federal government the right, indeed, the responsibility for enforcement. So the original constitution had protected slavery. The new post-Civil War constitution aimed to protect the rights of those who had been enslaved. The original constitution, or at least the first ten amendments passed immediately after ratification, the Bill of Rights, had sought to protect citizens from the federal government. The new 1860s constitution gave the federal government the responsibility to protect citizens. In the long decades of Jim Crow segregation, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was ignored or overridden, but it was there, waiting to be reawoken by lawyers and civil rights campaigners. And the black freedom struggle of the 1950s and 1960s is often well described as a second reconstruction, an attempt to complete the unfinished work of the first. And now, today... After a year in which the underlying racism of American society has been on raw display, the structural inequality, which means that people of colour are disproportionately among those most likely to be imprisoned, to die of COVID, to be stopped and killed by police. All these things, many people think, mean that America post-Trump needs a third reconstruction, another reckoning with itself. And to find out how the constitutional revolution of that first Reconstruction still matters, I sat down virtually, of course, to talk with Eric Foner, the preeminent historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction eras, Emeritus DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University, the author of many landmark books, including his famous book on Reconstruction, subtitled America's Unfinished Revolution, and including most recently, The Second Founding, a study of the post-war constitutional amendments. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm happy to be here, Adam. So, Eric, I I guess I really just want to ask you about the relevance of the Reconstruction era that you've spent so much of your life studying to the political situation the United States faces today. On January the 6th, the day of that violent attack on the U.S. Capitol. One of the photos that uh, stayed in my mind was of a white guy uh, with a Confederate flag standing in front of a of a portrait of the Massachusetts anti-slavery senator Charles Sumner. There was another one of him in front of the Whig Republican from Maine, Justin Morrill. I mean, incredible images, weren't they? I mean, quite aside from oh, the violence yeah, and the circumstances uh, of the attack. I mean, what was your reaction to an image like that as a historian of the Civil War and Reconstruction? Well, I, like many people, I was sort of just sitting there watching the uh, discussion 
of uh, the electoral vote, which was fairly boring, you know, and then all of a sudden television began giving you these images of people storming the Capitol, etc. I was shocked like everybody else. But uh, I also noticed that photograph of the Confederate flag juxtaposed uh, opposite Charles Sumner. When the conf- I, I, this must be the first time that Confederate flags were so prominently displayed inside the Capitol building. At least I can't think of any other time that that uh, happened. Uh, my first somebody pointed out on somebody pointed out on Twitter that the only exception to that was insofar as the Confederate flag was incorporated into various Southern state flags. Yes, until but ironically, that very day. In the, the legislature of Mississippi voted to approve a new state flag, which removed right. the Confederate symbol from it. Now it's a kind of funny looking uh, tree that the flag, that the flag represents. But, um, you know, my first reaction was, was weirdly was to say, good, I'm glad they're displaying the Confederate flag. This is this is nobody can deny what they stand for anymore. If you go around with the Confederate flag, that is a symbol of racism and slavery. I don't care how many times people say it's heritage, it's individual liberty. Uh, Anybody who knows anything about American history knows what the Confederate flag stands for or should know. So, you know, overall, of course, the all the images of that day were shocking and horrifying and, um, you know, really... um, make us think maybe in slightly different ways about uh, about American history or some of the assumptions we've had, we've developed about American history. I was talking on this podcast last term to Heather Cox Richardson, who's yeah. written a book, as you may know, called How the South Won the Civil War. And her argument is, as the book title suggests, that the the Civil War is never really over because the struggle against the modern-day Republican Party is, she thinks, exactly analogous to the struggle that, yes. I suppose, the 1850s Republicans had against the, the slave power. Do you agree with that? Uh, I know Heather very, very well. I've known her for many years. I like uh, most of her work. I, I think it's a little too simplified, but that's uh, not a, really a criticize, criticism. Uh, essentially, uh, yes, the Republican, the, the current Republican Party, not the party of the 1850s, but now, um, over the past half century, really, has moved closer and closer toward uh, not a Confederate point of view exactly, but uh, to what we call the politics of resentment, to appealing uh, pretty straightforwardly to uh, white uh, Americans who, the uh, so-called backlash, you know, who resent the changes that have taken place in American society since the 1960s, not only along racial lines, but uh, changes in the status of women, um, of course, changes in race relations, changes in the composition of the American population as it becomes more and more diversified. And, uh, of course, not to leave out where Trump... Um, uh, shrewdly perhaps uh, understood there were votes to be had, uh, people who have been left behind by the forces of economic globalization and feel resentful and are looking to strike out at some uh, group or other they can blame. So, um, you know, the notion that the Civil War is still going on 
is a useful one. I think that's what Barbara Field said at the very, very end of uh, Ken Burns's famous uh, uh, TV series on the Civil War. Of course, there's a corollary to that, which is a little bit disturbing, which is if the Civil War is still going on, it still can be lost. It's not inevitable that it will have been won. And I think there are people out there, including those who stormed the Capitol, who would like to reverse some of the changes that were put in place as a result of the Civil War, and particularly uh, the Reconstruction era after the war, where the laws and the Constitution were rewritten to try to guarantee a significant modicum of racial uh, equality in the country. That battle Reconstruction is also going on. So let's turn there to talk in more detail about those Reconstruction measures. Your, as I mentioned there in the intro, your your most recent book on the post-war amendments is called A Second Founding. And, you know, I sometimes I sometimes reflect that we're of course, we talk about the Fifth French Republic. We're in the Fifth French Republic now. And I think in South Korea, they're in their Sixth Republic. But in the United States, we're still fixated on the idea that the Constitution was written by these sort of silk-stocking gentlemen in Philadelphia in 1787. But the title of your book seems to suggest, suggest that those amendments, which is the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that were passed after the Civil War, were so substantive that they constituted something like a second founding so a could we talk should we be thinking really about a second american republic having been created well i think that's what they were trying to do uh in reconstruction and uh, you're right of course my um my title of that book is to suggest that these changes were so important that they produced a new constitution a constitution that for the first time first of all barred slavery throughout the entire nation and as you well know Uh, There were protections for slavery in the original Constitution. Slavery had been a very powerful force in American life in all sorts of ways. Um, Abolishing slavery was a more radical act than one might sort of think in retrospect. In retrospect, it sort of seems kind of inevitable. The Civil War leads to the end of slavery, but it didn't seem so inevitable to people at the time. Um, But, of course, that raised the fundamental question, what is going to be the status of these four million men, women, and children who have now been freed as a result of the Civil War? Uh, The 14th and 15th Amendments try to address that basic question. And, you know, some of the key changes, just uh, very quickly, you know, the 14th established a national standard of citizenship for the first time in American history. The original Constitution spoke about citizens, but never quite got around to saying who exactly they were. The Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision had declared that only a white person could be a citizen of the United States. Now, anybody born here is automatically a citizen. This is birthright citizenship. That was a fundamental change. But beyond that, it's it limited severely the uh, ability of states to interfere with the rights of these citizens. Um, the privilege, no state can abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens uh, without defining them. That's up to Congress. Uh, states, the 14th Amendment, states cannot deny to any person, not just citizens, any person within their boundaries, the equal protection of the laws. 
We like to think about the Declaration of Independence and its powerful words, all men are created equal, a very noble idea. But the word equal didn't appear in the original Constitution, except in one clause about what happens if people get an equal number of electoral votes. Um, it was the 14th Amendment that put into our Constitution the notion of equality among all Americans. And then the 15th Amendment uh, was meant to guarantee the right of African-American men to vote. Uh, before the Civil War, very, very few black people had the right to vote. In a, they did in a few states in New England where there were hardly any blacks. Now, um, they were brought into the American body politic. This was a fundamental change in the whole nature of uh, the republic. And so um, that's why I call it a second founding. Another way of putting it, if you want to borrow a phrase from the current era, they were trying to produce regime change. They were trying to change a regime grounded in slavery in many ways into a regime based on freedom and equality. That's a pretty tall order let's put it that way yeah and it was an ambitious project that was made possible only by the very particular and dramatic circumstances of the late 1860s so so at a, at a moment when the when the north or the the republican party in particular with a with a large majority in congress had huge political power right notwithstanding the fact that up until the beginning of 1869, they had a president, Andrew Johnson, who wanted to stand in the way of their agenda at every step. This was an incredible moment in American history because there was a congressional majority that can do that could right. do these things. But, you know, the presence of Andrew Johnson is important for two somewhat contradictory reasons. One, without going into Johnson, I, my view is, Johnson is the only president who gives Trump a run for his money for the um, award as the worst president in American history. And there's a lot of similarities between them, actually, down to their mm. mode of expression. Uh, they, they, were, they were both full, full of rancor against their opponents and all sorts of extreme language. The fact that they were impeached, the fact that they could not get along with the opposition, uh, in Johnson's case, his own party and Congress. But the point is that having a president opposed to what Congress is doing meant that everything had to be passed by a two-thirds majority to override Johnson's numerous vetoes of these measures. A president cannot veto a constitutional amendment. That's separate. But the laws implementing things. Um, and that meant that you needed unity in the Republican Party and, and in terms of the history, it's important to remember that because there's a sort of myth out there that the, these measures were all the result of radical fanatics, you know, uh, who were trying to impose, uh, you know, vindictive measures on the South. They weren't. They were the measures of the entire Republican Party. Virtually no Republican voted against any of the Reconstruction measures, and almost no Democrats in Congress voted uh, in favor of them. I think Reverdy Johnson was the only one who cast a positive vote on any of these measures. But um, uh, so in other words, the unity of the Republican Party was necessary, which meant that what was passed was the mainstream policy of the party at that moment. It was very radical comparing it to the pre-war era, but it certainly wasn't all that the radical Republicans wanted. 
Um, that's important in terms of how we think back on the Reconstruction era. It wasn't just a group of fanatics forcing through uh, measures that uh, most people didn't really want. Bearing that in mind, Eric, how important was it in the internal deliberations of the uh, Republicans, not just congressmen, but editors and the, the wider sort of Republican Party and people who are participating in these debates in the public sphere? How important was the motivation not of securing the rights of formerly enslaved people as such, but just of securing the state, the anxiety that having collapsed into this horrific civil war once, it could happen again unless measures were put in place in order to try to to suppress what we would now call you know domestic terror organizations yeah. to ensure that the that the boundaries of the political sphere were policed in such a way that there were some things that were just illegitimate and one of those things was illegitimate was people coming into congress who were still supportive of openly supportive of of insurrection right. uh yeah, that's very true. I mean, these measures had many motivations, as most congressional measures probably do. There's a mixture of um, of uh, humanitarian sentiment, let's say. There's a mixture of party uh, advantage. There's a mixture of, as you say, strengthening the national state, which is one of the major things going on in Reconstruction. You know, when when Congress first met in December 1865 to consider all this, uh, Thaddeus Stevens, the great radical, uh, talked about black suffrage, the importance of giving black men the right to vote. And he said, why? Why is that important? Number one, it is right. Number two, it will secure the majority of the Republican Party. And then he says, why is that important? Because the Republicans are the party of the nation, the party of, you know, anti-slavery. We are the true Americans. But in other words, so what is his motive? It is partly, you know, this is right. And partly it's to keep the Republican Party in power. Um, And of course, as you say, to secure the stability of the nation. And there are parts of these amendments, which are not really remembered today, which are very directly connected with that down to making sure that the Confederate debt is never repaid. That's in the 14th Amendment. If you were a Southerner and you patriotically loaned money to the Confederate government, that money is gone. You're not going to see a penny of it. Same thing with slavery. No one is ever going to get uh, payment compensation for the loss of their slave property. But they also put into effect that people, a complicated measure in the 14th Amendment that Political leaders of the South who had taken an oath of office to the United States before the war and then joined the Confederacy are barred from holding public office. Again, that's policing the boundaries of the state, as you said, trying to make sure that governments in the South are composed of what was called truly loyal people. Um, So, yes, they're trying to reshape the body politic partly, as you said, to make sure that nothing like the Civil War ever happens again. As you've explained, one of the things that the these amendments did was to accrue power to the federal government. The Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, were imagined to to apply to the federal government, because I suppose the assumption was that it was the federal government that was the likely source of tyranny. That right. was the level of government that was supposed to become over mighty. Right. 
But what these post-war constitutional amendments do, in effect, is to reverse that relationship and give the federal government not just the right, but the responsibility to enforce the equal protection of the law. Yes. That's a dramatic change. How did Congress go about trying to do that? How was that enforcement, what was the enforcement mechanism they could use? Well, to pursue your point there, first of all, just compare the first words of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. It's directed, as you said, against the federal government. Each of the three constitutional amendments of Reconstruction ends with a a section saying Congress shall have the power to enforce this. Congress shall make no law. That's a restriction on the federal government. Now Congress shall have the power. It's the states that are restricted from interfering with the basic rights of citizens. And the very fact that you have that final section about Congress shall have the power to enforce it by appropriate legislation. That means Reconstruction is not just a moment. It's going to continue. Congress will continue watching and seeing what further legislation is necessary. And during the uh, late 1860s and into the 1870s, they passed all sorts of laws, civil rights laws, enforcement laws to try to combat the Ku Klux Klan and other violent groups that were Uh, you know, trying to restore white supremacy in the South. Uh, They established the Department of Justice, which had not even existed up to 1870. They expanded the appellate jurisdiction of the federal courts. The federal government in Reconstruction, unfortunately, was not the massive bureaucratic state we have now. It was not very well equipped to police the entire South. You just didn't have enough manpower there. Um, And that eventually (laughs) helped to produce the end of Reconstruction. Uh, You could send troops into the South again, as Grant did in 1871. But, you know, constantly sending troops to deal with local disturbances is is not likely to be very popular in a country that thinks of itself as a democracy. Uh, You could do it on occasion, but it's not a permanent solution to you know, having a uh, orderly political system. You you mentioned the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan Acts were one way legislatively in which Congress tried to enforce the provisions of the Fourteenth Amendment. How, how successful were the well, Ku Klux was, Klan? Acts? They were successful to start with. Uh, in a, if you are willing to really vigorously enforce these measures, you can succeed. Grant did crush the Ku Klux Klan. In 1871, he sent troops into South Carolina. They arrested large numbers of people. They held them in jail. They suspended, uh, they they established martial law basically for a while. Um, And they put a lot of people on trial and a lot of Klansmen fled. In fact, ironically, a bunch of them fled to Canada, retracing the steps that fugitive slaves used used to take getting from the South to Canada where they were safe. Um, So it worked at first. And in fact, in 1872, when you had a presidential election, things were pretty peaceful throughout uh, the South. But then for complicated reasons, violence begins to rear its head again. And northern commitment to the enforcement of these laws begins to wane. One reason is the Supreme Court, even during Reconstruction, uh, starts interpreting these amendments in an extremely narrow way. Uh, The court, uh, the the justices are products of the pre-war jurisprudence. 
which basically is state-centered, which says most of your rights are come from the states, are protected by the states. And they basically say that the constitutional amendments really haven't changed all that much. Blacks are citizens, yes, but if their rights are violated, it's up to the states to protect them. But the Klan and other groups, it wasn't only the Klan, there were plenty of them, uh, was very, the, the, the state governments were, seemed to be too weak to put down this kind of violence. And increasingly, the court said the federal government couldn't do it either. So um, that was you know, one reason for the waning of Reconstruction. Let's take the, the issue of the right of black people to vote. Uh, you've mentioned that that was the purpose of the 15th Amendment, but it wasn't expressed as a positive right, was it? It was expressed in terms of a prohibition yes. on the uh, on states to deny the right of the vote to people on the grounds of race. It, so was there something about the... Is that an example of the of there being something about the way these amendments were framed that gave the courts the wiggle room to interpret them in ways that rolled back the intention of the people who drew them up? Well, how courts interpret laws, how the Supreme Court interprets laws is always a sort of controversial thing. Yes. uh, Yeah, there were problems with the way they were framed. And it's an interesting point you make about the 15th Amendment, because Um, That's the way all of our voting rights are described in the Constitution. People are not always aware. There is no positive right to vote in the Constitution. That comes from the states. Voting is is, uh, regulated by the states. There are 50 different sets of voting regulations uh, in the United States, which is a kind of strange situation. We saw a little bit of the problem there in the past presidential election. In one state, you can vote by mail up to the election. In another state, you can't vote by mail until except for weeks before. Uh, in one state, you have to present a voter, uh, you know, a driver's license to vote. In other states, you don't. There's no national uh, regulation. What there is, as you said, are national prohibitions on ways of limiting the right to vote. So a state nowadays cannot say black people can't vote. It cannot say women can't vote. It cannot charge a poll tax for voting. There are four or five amendments to the Constitution which eliminate ways of denying people the right to vote, but don't say specifically, well, who then does have the right to vote? That's still up to the individual uh, states. And to my mind, that's a very, uh, you know, it's not a very good situation in a large, complicated uh, democracy. Um, But so, for example, the 15th Amendment did not prohibit literacy tests. It did not prohibit property qualifications for voting. It was, by the way, this wasn't an oversight. It was stated in the congressional uh, uh, debates that this measure could be gotten around in various ways. If you put in a literacy test and a poll tax and other things, you would eliminate most of the black voters, even if you didn't say anything about race. And when the southern states around the turn of the century um, did take the right to vote away from black men, uh, they didn't pass laws saying black people can't vote. That would have violated the 15th Amendment. But they used all these other ways which succeeded in pretty much eliminating the black vote. But the, the, the underlying thing is here is that the states wanted to keep control of the voting system and the voting qualifications. 
you could not have gotten the 15th Amendment passed except as a measure about black suffrage, which by this point, the, uh, uh, the Republican Party was united behind that principle. Not always, but at this point it was. But for example, California wanted to make sure that they could keep Chinese from voting, which they did. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't accept it just that all adult men could vote or something like that. Um, so it, it, there were problems in these amendments. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court, over time, it did interpret them in the narrowest possible manner as time went on. Uh, where there were possible interpretations, they, also, they always seemed to take the one that was the least uh, beneficial to African-Americans. So you've, we've been talking about the ways in which these post-war amendments constituted a, a second founding, but everything you've been saying in the last few minutes reminds us of the limitations of these amendments. I mean, this specific issue about the American Constitution not including a positive right to vote is, as you've, as you've implied, astonishing to outsiders. I mean, other federal systems, you know, Canada, Australia, have a national electoral commission and uniform rules across the various jurisdictions about who is entitled to vote and how the vote should be conducted. Why is that? Why was that then? And does that continue to be up until today so completely unimaginable in the United States? Because that's a non-starter, isn't it? If you were to try to propose that now, a National Electoral Commission, it would get it wouldn't get anywhere, would yeah, it? Probably, and it never well, would have. We will see history. because the, uh, the the Democratic Party it seems to be committed right now to passing, if not a national electoral commission, a national set of standards about voting. There's a the, the, the House bill number one that's being introduced with this new uh, Congress is a voting rights bill. Uh, partly it's meant to stop states from throwing people off the voting rolls, which many of them have been doing lately to, Georgia, Texas, Wisconsin, where generally where Republicans are in charge, they've tried to limit the right to vote uh, as, as, best, uh, as best they can. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what to say, but I think you're right. The idea that it's the states that regulate voting is part of our federal system, which it seems impossible to, um, you know, override. What what do you think are the lessons? We've got a, a moment now where there will be very narrow Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress and a, and a Democratic president. What do you think are the lessons that they can draw from the Reconstruction era in a in a positive yeah. sense? Well, of course, their margins are very razor thin, right? One- Right. So it's very different from the situation the Republicans were in in the 1860s in terms of their scope. One vote, presumably in the Senate, what are they, 10 or 12 um, seats ahead in the House. Um, Well, one thing is it puts an enormous uh, burden again on party unity, uh, just as during Reconstruction. A few dissenters in the Democratic Party and bills will not be able to get passed, assuming that almost all the Republicans will be opposed to what Biden uh, is trying to do. You know, I think the lessons, <laughs> we don't like to talk too much about direct lessons of history, but the lesson we've seen in the last couple of uh, weeks here uh, is number one, the fragility of democracy in our country. Um, when I said earlier on in our conversation that we might want to rethink a little bit 
some assumptions about American history, you know, they, we have a tendency uh, uh, to assume that the United States is the last best hope, as Lincoln said, and as you have said, uh, is the symbol of democracy for the entire world. We are a model of how democratic, uh, you know, democratic government can uh, survive and prosper. But it may be that commitment to the idea of democracy is less deeply rooted in our political culture than we perhaps would like to think. Uh, people who storm the Capitol, people who buy into all these uh, mythologies about fraud, about stolen election, people who, well, when Trump started, remember, his main issue was actually that Obama wasn't even an American. Um, that he was born, you know, he, he wasn't even eligible to be president, which kind of reminded some of us of the Dred Scott decision. And it's saying that only white people really are citizens of the United States. And then again, I think with Reconstruction, it's the need for persistence in <laughs> enforcing these rights. Uh, if you if you stop, if you just get tired, if you, you know, get exhausted by the struggle, then it's it's not going to succeed. I'm very nervous. I, I'm very concerned about the state of our country right now because I fear that the, um, you know, the Trumpites are not going away, even though he is no longer in, the, in office, and they are going to be around with their mythologies, with their stab in the back uh, idea. You know, there's a, I hate to use this term, but there's a sort of proto-fascism uh, uh, bubbling around. It's not a majority or anything like that, but between the cult of the leader, the militaristic frame of mind, the disdain for democracy um, that we've seen, the racism, it does remind me of uh, some of the European fascist uh, movements of the earlier in the 20th century. Uh, again, I don't mean to be uh, uh, too much of an alarmist, uh, I'm generally an optimist, but what's happened in the last month in our country has made me a little less optimistic than I used to be about the future of our political system. Earlier on, you, you mentioned that one of the provisions of the 14th Amendment was designed to prohibit people who'd held office in the Confederacy from holding office uh, ever again. And this is the third section of the 14th Amendment, which says no person shall be a senator or representative uh, or electoral president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who, having previously taken an oath, uh, shall then have engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And that was clearly specifically designed with people who'd supported the Confederacy in mind. You've recently suggested that the third section of the 14th Amendment should be used to bar Donald Trump from office. Yes. Um, how would that work and, and what problem would that solve? Well, you know, there is an impeachment about to happen. Impeachment requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate to convict. It's unlikely, in my opinion, that will happen since Republicans mostly are still behind Trump. Um, although there probably are a good number of Republicans who wouldn't mind if uh, Trump were barred from all those prospective candidates for 2024. But you know, yeah, the third section, nobody had ever heard of the third section of the 14th Amendment, except fanatics like you and me who study these things. <laughs> but, um, you know, my view is this is in the Constitution for a reason. And Trump has incited insurrection in the last week. Um, he has incited people to storm the Capitol. 
He did take an oath to uphold the Constitution. It seems to me Congress can declare that he is, as a result of what happened, ineligible to hold office anymore under the 14th Amendment. How would that work? You wouldn't need a giant trial. You probably would need a hearing of some kind. This is not a trial with lawyers and witnesses, really. It's a political, it's almost like a qualification for office. It would be as if, let's say, AOC, the famous um, radical congresswoman, uh, ran for president. Um, they would say, well, you can't be president right now because you're not 35 years, you don't meet the qualifications. You're not 35 years of age yet. You can't run. I'm sorry, you're off the ballot. If Trump tries to get on the ballot, they should say, I'm sorry, you can't run. You took an oath to support the Constitution, and then you incited insurrection. And therefore, under the Constitution, you are ineligible to hold any office under the United States. Now, this has been applied only a very, very few times. It was actually applied in Reconstruction. Uh, some local officials in various states were just booted out of office. Uh, by Congress or by local officials saying, well, you don't qualify anymore because of this section of the uh, amendment. Um, uh, The last one, this is not a very good precedent. Uh, Are you aware of this? Victor Berger, the socialist congressman from Wisconsin, who was evicted from the House of Representatives under the third section of the 14th Amendment, but he had been convicted under the Espionage Act Uh, of 1918 because he opposed American intervention in World War I. And Congress then said, well, you have committed this crime. You can't serve. Later, the Supreme Court overturned Berger's conviction and they let him back into Congress and he served two more terms. Yeah, I've only heard of that case because you wrote about it. And so I looked it up. I only heard of it a week ago or so. (laughs) So my my only I think you mentioned it in your piece in the Washington yeah. Post. So I looked it up and I did I did think you just kind of said this really. But the the analog the difficulty with the analogy with Trump is that as you say he had been convicted in a court. We can debate right. about whether he should have been or not and the legitimacy of that legislation. But Trump has not been convicted by any court. I mean, would Congress first have to pass some piece of legislation to say that he uh, which which Trump would then. I think a congressional resolution would be sufficient. And that's how they did it in Reconstruction. A resolution was passed that in several Virginia officials were declared ineligible for office by a vote of Congress, a resolution um, mm. saying you did this and you did that. And therefore you, the, you are ineligible for office. They were removed from office. Now these were local, these were not like president of the United States, but, and they were told you can never serve in office again because of this section. It's a complicated situation now because there are so few precedents for how this, there would have to be some procedure. That's why I say maybe a hearing an afternoon where somebody would say, well, he, d- he said, let's march on the Capitol and uh, be tough. You don't get anything by weakness. And I'll be there with you. Of course, he immediately then went inside and watched it on TV. Um, and uh, that constitutes uh, assisting insurrection. Now, somebody might say, no, it doesn't. It's freedom of speech. They'd have to vote on that. But it wouldn't. I don't think it would require a giant trial and all that kind of thing, because it's not a criminal procedure. And. No right. one has a right to serve as a uh, in office, so to speak. In other words, Congress... It could be challenged in the courts, presumably, and, and perhaps... Hopefully the, it would, yes. And, 
Congress would be vulnerable that, that there is Article 1, Section 9 says that Congress can't pass bills of attainder. In other words, they can't pass bills criminalizing an individual because that should be the role of the right, courts. Right, but, but it, since that was in the Constitution, when Congress passed the 14th Amendment, that section has equal right. weight to the Bill of Attainder thing. In other words, it's now also part of the Constitution, knowing that the Bill of Attainder is in there. So, uh, Adam, I am not a lawyer. I am not a law <laughs> professor. No, my. my friends are lawyers. I'm very peaceful. I never, I've never been in a court, barely. So I'm not the person to solve all these problems. But I was the person, <laughs> as a historian, to at least put this out there as something to be considered. Mm. And one of the reasons is the Biden administration does not want the first two months of his presidency to be consumed by an impeachment trial of President Trump, especially because Trump will no longer be in office. Um, mm. Because the Constitution does say if there's an impeachment trial, then all other business stops. Is that what he wants? The first uh, two months or so with right. all these crises that Congress can't do anything except debate the impeachment of Trump? I think it'd be better to have a different... Yeah, it sounds like a nightmare. I mean, I suppose the underlying point is that um, on the on it's massively consequential, but the relatively narrow issue of whether what Trump said on January the 6th was a direct... uh, had a direct impact on those people violently assaulting the Capitol is one thing, but the broader question is the big lie that not just Trump, but loads of Republicans in the House and the Senate uh, supported, which is this allegation that the election was stolen. And there's absolutely no evidence to support that. It's been taken to multiple courts around right. the country, and they've all just laughed it out of court. And yet the Republican Party, vast numbers of the Republican Party, and l- polls show that most Republican voters now unsurprisingly think this, are claiming that the election was fraudulent. Now, that is a profound danger to any democratic uh, country, I, isn't I agree it? with you. It's the big lie technique, which we are familiar with from the 20th century. And uh, people like Hitler and others understood the, the bigger the lie, perhaps the more likely people are to uh, swallow it whole. And is there any analogy from the Reconstruction era that could help deal with that? Because this, the, this third section of the 14th Amendment strategy might work to bar Trump from running office, uh, running for, for office again legitimately. Uh, but how do you somehow prohibit, as 1860s Republicans wanted to prohibit people from participating in public life, whose values, whose thoughts, whose ideas were fundamentally at odds with it, who were dangerous and therefore had to be prescribed in some way? That's why there were all these oaths that had to be right. taken across you the South. take the ironclad oath to hold this, right. which meant that you had never helped the Confederacy in any way. Um, it almost feels to me like you know you need and we need a new era of the oath you need some kind of fundamental sense that you signing up to the rules of the game and the rules of the game are that we have elections and unless there's evidence that the elections have been fraudulent in some way and obviously fraud can happen but then you take it to a court and you litigate it and and if there is no evidence then you have to accept the legitimacy of your opponent winning. Well, presumably you and- do. And certainly, if, let us say, the state of Texas announced that it doesn't recognize Biden as president because he was fraudulently elected, um, uh, I'm not talking about secession and civil war. I'm just saying we will not deal with him as president. Any order that he issues, we will not accept. 
and it you know, right. sort of like the nullification crisis, maybe. Um, yeah. Well, how far would that get? Probably not very far. Probably the courts would immediately, uh, the governor would soon be held in contempt of court for, uh, let's say they said, we're not paying tax, income taxes to the federal government from Texas uh, because the uh, fraud is present. I don't know. I think the bigger issue is really freedom of speech and um, civil liberties. And Trump, let's say, can't hold office anymore. And he can't be on Facebook or Twitter, but he can certainly find ways to get his ideas out there. There is no way you can muzzle Trump forever. Um, And um, there are a lot of people who want to hear what he has to say, unfortunately. Finally, Eric, I just wonder whether, I mean, this is, you've just said you're an optimist, and I think I'm an optimist basically too, but I do wonder looking at the United States whether the problem is that the Constitution of the United States is so sclerotic. It's so difficult to amend. It was possible to amend it in a relatively somewhat revolutionary way in the 1860s, in these exceptional circumstances after the Civil War. It isn't possible to do anything like that now. And the Constitution enables a minority, in this case, the Republican Party, that hasn't won a majority of the popular vote in a presidential election uh, well, you know, in 2004, before that it was 1988, wasn't it? So they're a minority party, and yet they're able to wield disproportionate power because of the Electoral College, because of the Senate, um, because of the way that seats are allocated in the House, and none of these things can be changed. And that's a profound problem for a country, isn't it? Well, you know, I, I, I think uh, you, as a resident of the United Kingdom, can say that more uh, freely than us uh, law-abiding Americans. But one of your predecessors, uh, I don't know if you ever met him uh, as one as a great British historian of the United States, uh, William Brock, W. R. Oh, yes. I knew I know Willie, knew William Brock very, very well. well. In his yes. book on yes. Reconstruction, which is a very good book, An American Crisis, yes. he makes the remark that really the big problem was the Constitution itself and the way Americans so revere the Constitution that they try to uh, make believe that what they're doing is constitutional, even when it isn't, or they insist you have to change the Constitution in ways that are very difficult, as you said, and that really they should have, what they should have said in Reconstruction is, we have to have a completely new Constitution here. As you said, mm. France has had five or six of them. It doesn't seem to have damaged France, that they have all these different, they've had these different constitutions. France is still there, right? Uh, The nation is not broken up. So, um, yeah, but that's not, that's a non-starter in American politics or even uh, political thought. We are are wedded to the idea that we have the greatest constitution in the world and nobody can say anything bad about it. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. This has been a really enjoyable conversation, albeit about rather alarming subjects. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you, Adam. One problem that has always haunted American politics, and in this, as in so many ways, the US is hardly alone, is the question of when legitimate opposition becomes illegitimate. It's a version of the classic liberal problem. How far can a free society tolerate people who want to tear it down? In the 1860s, Congress had to work out how to deal with people who had waged war against the United States, but who were now citizens again. People who rejected as illegitimate a new biracial political order. 
What could be done about them? How could the loyalty of such people be measured? On what terms could they be allowed back into public life? One of the things the constitutional amendments did was to give the federal government some tools to deal with those they thought still disloyal and to empower those often African-Americans they thought sufficiently loyal. Today, a significant chunk of the American population think that not only was the presidential election rigged, but that the multiracial, pluralistic America represented by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is illegitimate on some fundamental level. If not everyone agrees to the rules of the game, how can politics work? It was the question of the 1860s, and it's a question for now. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford University's Centre for the Study of the United States and its place in the world. And if you've enjoyed this conversation between me and Eric Foner, then do listen to some of our other episodes, subscribe and like us to make it easy for other people to find us. Goodbye. Goodbye.